Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Gus Tafoya, in for host Stephen Spitz. Today, we're listening back to Stephen's 2008 interview with Albuquerque civil rights lawyer Nancy Hollander. She was portrayed by Jodie Foster in the 2021 film The Mauritanian for her efforts in winning the freedom of Mohamedou Salahi from U.S. prison in Guantanamo, Cuba. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Our guest is New Mexico civil rights attorney Nancy Hollander, who you may remember for her defense of Wen Ho Lee. Although Nancy Hollander graduated from UNM Law School, and her law office is right here in Albuquerque, she has a nationwide civil rights practice. Today we'll talk with Nancy about what it's like to represent a Guantanamo detainee, her defense of a Muslim charity against terrorism charges, and her suit to stop the Bush administration from warrantless wiretapping. Three major cases of great interest to all. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Can we turn first to uh, Guantanamo? And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your representation of the detainee that you represent at Guantanamo. I represent a a prisoner there. I know that uh, everyone refers to them as detainees, and they refer to this as a detainee facility. Um, uh, Frankly, my client's a prisoner, and he's been imprisoned there since 2002. His name is Mohamedou Old Salahi. He's a uh, African from Mauritania. He uh, was arrested in Mauritania. You know, it's one of the common myths is that all of the men in Guantanamo were picked up on the battlefield. In fact, probably 5% were actually captured on the battlefield. The rest were either uh, turned in to the United States for bounties or picked up in other countries, many other countries around the world. He turned himself in, actually, in Mauritania, and it turned out the Americans wanted to talk to him. This was back in December of 2001. The Americans uh, flew him illegally, it's called rendition, to Jordan, where he was locked up for eight months, um, not treated well and then uh, flew him to Bagram Air Force Base. And we actually have found the tail number of the Gulfstream airplane that flew him to Bagram Air Force Base, and then he was flown to Cuba. He was kept in the CIA. We've heard about their secret prisons around the world. They actually have one in Guantanamo, and he was there for a year also. He's never been charged with any crime. He is considered an enemy combatant. Now, I, I kind of assume that the, you're not getting a lot of money for representing this individual, but I don't know that. Is that... Uh, not only am I not getting any money, I'm spending a lot of money. There is no money. Uh, his family, of course, has no money. They're very poor. Uh, they're, my law firm and I, uh, my law partners generously contribute, uh, and we pay all the expenses to go to Guantanamo We have a lawyer in France, a lawyer in Mauritania, and a lawyer in Washington, all of whom are also working for free. And um, a lawyer in my office, Teresa Duncan, and I represent him. But it costs about $1,000 every trip to Guantanamo. So one 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 of the things that drew me to to do this show with you was uh, you know some people talk and are concerned about what's happened to our civil rights in America and other people actually do something about it and I'm wondering 
what causes what causes you to take on cases like this and and do what you do? Uh, I think Guantanamo in particular is is probably the most important issue in America today because this is a situation where the United States government has locked up over 500 men at various times, never charged them with crimes, mistreated them, tortured some of them, and essentially thought it was throwing away the key. The government of the United States thought that if it put these men in Guantanamo, which is a a, a base that we lease in perpetuity from uh, Cuba, that they could say they're not in America and they don't get any rights and they would just stay there forever. And in fact, that's what the government had in mind. And it is incons- it was inconceivable to me until the day this happened that this would happen in my country. And doing something about it, it seems to me, is what all of us who can should be doing. I can, and so that's what I'm doing. Um, well, one of the things about this is that it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot you can even do. In other words, so far, hasn't the government been rather successful in preventing lawyers from actually representing detainees or prisoners, if you want to call them that, at Guantanamo? Well, the government's been successful in one sense, in that now they're they're winning in the court at the moment, although I hope that that will change. But they're not winning in the court of public opinion, and they're not winning in the court of public opinion around the world. And although the government started sending people there in, in 2002, f- the government was thwarted in its efforts to keep these men completely without lawyers because the courts did rule, the Supreme Court in the Rezul decision, that they did have a right to petition for habeas corpus, and lawyers started showing up. And all of a sudden, the government had to um, make conditions for lawyers. And, and one thing I think we should probably distinguish, Nancy, is between these military commission trials uh, for people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is uh, who claims to be the mastermind of the 9-11. And everything else. And, right? and everything else. And people that, like the person you represent, Mohammedu, who who is simply classified as an enemy combatant. Right. There, there are two procedures. There's the military commissions— and then there are the uh, combatant status review tribunals. And everyone there, I believe by now, just about everyone has had a been before one of these tribunals. The government says, well, that's, that's process. That's how we prove that they're enemy combatants. That's some kind of due process. But in the first place, the rules of the uh, combatant status review tribunal, the CSRT, is a presumption of guilt. There is a presumption that the person is an enemy combatant right in the rules. And the rules are written by the Department of Defense and they change, just like the definition of enemy combatant has changed over the past four years. So, for example, they asked my client, there are three questions that they asked him that are really significant. Um, Did you ever fight in Afghanistan with al-Qaeda? And he answered, and this is public now. These transcripts are out on the internet. He answered yes. But he said, I I did that in 1989 to 1992. Well, at that time, the United States government was also fighting because they were fighting against the Soviet Union. In other words, they were on the the same side. side. We were on the same side. But 
the the uh, prosecutor said, oh, he admitted it. He fought with um, al-Qaeda. There's number one. Then they asked him, um, did you ever, did you want to die as a martyr? And he said, every Muslim wants to die as a martyr. Oh, that proves it. He wants to die as a martyr. Now, what they, what he then continued saying was, I don't uh, believe in killing innocent people. And the prosecutor, to show how little our government understands, said to him, how can you be a martyr if you don't believe in killing innocent people? Which means absolutely no understanding of Islam, none at all. My client explained it to him, but that didn't matter. What's the explanation? That um, virtually anyone who doesn't die of natural causes can be a martyr. If he dies of dysentery, if someone dies in um, the West Bank because they can't get across a border crossing because an Israeli guard won't let him through, that person dies as a martyr. If a woman dies in childbirth, she dies as a martyr. It's, It's very broad. I see. And there are some people who believe that if you commit suicide, you absolutely cannot be a martyr. So that whole issue, if you read the transcripts of the uh, combatant status review tribunals, uh, they would be funny if it weren't that people were being locked up. There are people who are—the Taliban, for example, conscripted people against their will. And there's a transcript of one of the CRSTs where someone said, well, how long were you with the Taliban? He said, well, three months. What did you do? I was in prison. Why were you in prison? Because they arrested me and captured me and locked me up. And, well, you were with the Taliban, enemy combatant, end of story. And, and that's to be distinguished from people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or David Hicks, the Australian who are charged with specific criminal acts and who can be sentenced for those criminal for acts. For criminal acts, right. My client and most of them uh, have never been charged with any crime. If you've just tuned in, uh, this is a KUNM special on New Mexico, Places, People, and Ideas. My guest is civil rights attorney Nancy Hollander, and my name is Stephen Spitz. So, Nancy, what can you do to help this individual at Mohamedou? Because, as I understand it, you, you can't attend these hearings. We can't, that's right. We can't attend the hearings. Uh, we have filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus for him. We, at this point, that stayed while the government, we don't know whether it's going to go forward or not. If it goes forward, then we'll proceed that way. We can visit him, and we visit him. We try to visit him every other month just so that he has some contact with human beings. We write to him. Um, he writes to us, and we'll just have to keep finding other ways to try to assist him until hopefully we get him out someday. Well, my understanding is that after the United States Supreme Court issued a decision essentially saying the Guantanamo detainees have habeas corpus rights, Congress passed a statute that took away the jurisdiction of the federal courts to hear these cases, and now there's been the D.C. Court of Appeals has agreed with Congress and said that's constitutional. So as matters stand right now, essentially there's really nothing that can be done for these people, as uh, I understand it. Uh, from from the legal standpoint, you're correct, but uh, it's hoped that the Supreme Court will again look at the case, uh, all these cases, and will again decide that they have a right of habeas corpus. And lawyers are still permitted to go to Guantanamo. We're not sure how long that will last, but my co-counsel is going next week, for example. Um, We can continue 
to argue in the court of public opinion. We can continue to argue with the European countries and put pressure on the government and pressure on the other countries uh, to take their people back. And that's what we'll have to continue to do. Well, another facet that I wanted to ask you about was, was uh, the claims of torture. And I believe I read in the Supreme Court decision that the uh, Geneva Conventions do apply to Guantanamo detainees and that they could raise questions of torture. And well, I'm wondering whether or not for example, was your client exposed to any torture? My client was exposed to torture, and um, he was tortured in Guantanamo in a secret CIA prison. Uh, some of what he has written about that is more or less public. A good bit of it is not because um, as soon as he—he's written us about 500 pages. He writes beautiful English. He also reads and writes French, Arabic, and German— but as soon as he started writing about his conditions, the government stamped his documents not as classified, but as protected. Another something that they essentially made up, which means it's not classified. I can carry it around with me. I can send it to my counsel who are foreign, but I can't share it with the press or the public. So, so, so what, I'm limited in what I can talk about that he said. What, what can you do, if anything, based on the fact that he was tortured? Are, are there any actions that you can take? There are not really any actions to take at this point. If he's ever charged with something and they try to base it on any statements he made, then we'll have an issue. But if they don't charge him, as they know, there's, there's no remedy. So, so these people, I mean, they're, they're really in a complete black hole. That's a complete black hole. It is a bottomless pit. And they're in this hole for the rest of their lives. Unless we can figure out a way to to get them out. And uh, my feeling is that the best way to get them out is to have the entire world community uh, explode against the United States for doing this. And and this is despite the fact that there's no real crim- there's no real criminal charge against your client or any of the other so-called enemy commands? No. I mean, some of them, the government has evidence and some it doesn't. The government claims to have evidence against my client. The government thinks they have very serious evidence against him. Uh, My feeling is if they believe he's as bad as they say he is, well, then let's have a trial and find out. Um, I'd like to, 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 to move on to the second matter, the Holy Land Charity that you represent. And I guess you represent not only the charity, but one of the individuals that are charged with right. terrorist acts. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that case. The Holy Land Foundation was the largest Muslim charity in America until its assets were frozen, and it was closed down in December of 2001, December 4th. Several years later, in 2004, Seven individuals, five of whom are in the United States, were charged with providing material support to Hamas. And my client, Shukri Abu Bakr, is one of those. The case is pending in Dallas. It will go to trial in July. Our clients and the Holy Land Foundation were charged with providing humanitarian aid to organizations that are controlled by Hamas, Hamas is a designated terrorist organization, been designated as a terrorist organization by the United States government. They're not charged with providing any guns. They're not charged with providing suicide belts. They're charged with providing charity. 
but providing it to organizations that the United States government says were controlled by Hamas. And I might add that the United States government provided charity to exactly the same organizations during the same time frame. Well, that's stunning. Yes, but, but, it is but, stunning. But I guess but, even more stunning. But the stunning, government doesn't think that's relevant. I don't. I guess I'm. I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I've never heard of a of a charge like this. Are there charges like this against people in the United States too? The, like, well, this is the United States. No, but I mean, right. for example, like the Crips and the Bloods or the Mafia. No, you know, you know, you're you're providing material support to families or to found charitable foundations mm. that might somehow result in criminal activity. No, I've never heard of that. it's it's a very. Um, the statute, there's a statute that makes it illegal to provide any support to a designated terrorist organization. So it's un- a unique statute. It's a pretty unique statute. I see. To go back to Mohamedou for a minute, he is on the designated terrorist list. He shouldn't be, and that's some confusion between him and his brother-in-law. But in order to represent him even for free, I had to get what's called a license from the Office of Foreign Asset Control at the Department of Treasury, otherwise I would be providing material support to a terrorist. So the government's position is that these charity committees, these are committees and organizations in the West Bank who provide charity, uh, they're, they're Muslim charities. Muslims are required to tithe, essentially. It's called zakat, uh, an Arab, the Arabic word, and they set up committees so that if... For example, someone wants to give their annual tithe and they don't know who to give it to. They can give it to this committee and they'll find the people who need it. Nobody, nobody alleges that the money that Holy Land sent did not go to needy families. Nobody alleges that they were not needy. The Palestinians are are destitute. And... Uh, in the Muslim religion, orphans are particularly important because the Prophet Muhammad was an orphan. So it's very important to give money to orphans. And that's what Holy Land did. A pittance, $45 a month. And you're saying the government gave money to these same organizations and, and people? And, and, uh, and to this day, USAID is still giving money to some of these same organizations. Well, but to flip it around, it seems to me that if you think about Hamas and you think about Israel, and you think about Fatah, they're all what I would term terrorist organizations in the conventional sense because they're using violence or the threat of violence to try to achieve some political end. They're just fighting among themselves about what the political end should be. Well, and and, and some people would make that argument, a political argument. Um, our position in our case is that the politics really don't matter. What matters is our clients were providing charity. The government has to prove that the people they gave it to or the organizations they gave it to were controlled by Hamas. If the government can prove that they were controlled by Hamas, then they've made their case because it's illegal. Our position is they cannot prove that. These these organizations exist to this day, and the government's list of designated terrorist organizations is huge, hundreds of organizations on it. Well, these zakat committees, these charity committees, to this day, now seven or eight years after the after Holy Land was closed down, are still not on the U.S. designated terrorist list. So, so you, one of the things you're not going to try to prove in your case is that Hamas is not a terrorist organization. No, we're not going to. We and we're not. We're not even. We're prohibited by statute from contesting the designation. 
the United States has designated a terrorist organization. We can't even contest that, and we're not going to. And we're, my clients were never supporters of Hamas. They were never political. They simply wanted to provide charity. So, so what brings you to want to defend these people in this case? Well, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, primarily. That's what you do. Uh, that's <laughs> what I do. Um, and I believe that the government has an obligation, if they're going to bring a case, to bring it using honest ethical evidence and to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. We got involved with the Holy Land Foundation back when it was a civil case. When it first was designated, we fought the designation in 2001, and we lost. But we got to know the case very well and the individuals. And when they were indicted, frankly, we were the logical people to represent them because we already knew about it. This case, too, is not free, but it's um, under the Criminal Justice Act, which means that I get paid— a small amount of money because they're indigent. The government of the United States has to pay for their defense. So, but, th- but this isn't like Ken Starr, who everybody knows went after Bill Clinton and just represented the superintendent of a school district in the Supreme Court on a mm-hmm. bong hits for Jesus, where he might get additional business, say, for Kirkland & Ellis, a big Chicago law firm, mm-hmm. for doing this representation. You're not doing it, I take it, for What are you? Are you doing it? I'm I'm doing it because I believe in it, because I believe that, um, I mean, in this case, I believe my clients are innocent, but uh, that's not how I choose criminal cases. I I choose criminal cases. uh, They come to me, and I generally take them unless there's some reason not to, but this case I really believe in, and I believe in these people. I got to know them very well, and I believe that we could provide a a defense for them because we already were familiar with this case. And and there's, you have to understand, there's, the government had wiretaps for 10 years um, on eight different phone lines. And that information is all classified. The government is starting to declassify some of it, but it's a huge, it is a huge amount of paper involved in this case. And for someone to come in who doesn't know anything about the case, anything about the history, anything about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, we'd already learned it. So we were the right people, I think, to to do it. If you've just tuned in, this is a KUNM special in New Mexico, Places, People, and Ideas. My guest is civil rights attorney Nancy Hollander, and my name is Stephen Spitz. And I'd like to just shift to the subject you really kind of suggested, which is wiretaps, because uh, you're also a plaintiff in a case to try to stop the government from wiretapping lawyers. And can you tell us a little bit about that case? Well, the several months ago, it's maybe been a year ago now, we discovered that the government had for quite a while been illegally wiretapping individuals. The, um, the NSA, National Security Agency, had been illegally wiretapping. There's a law in this country and there's a whole court set up about the FISA court, the Foreign um, Intelligence Surveillance, Surveillance Act, Act court. court. Right. <laughs> and the FISA court was set up in 1978 to stop abuses of illegal wiretapping and to try to do it in such a way that would balance people's civil rights against illegal Are you trying to stop all wiretapping outside FISA or just that between attorneys and clients? All wiretapping outside of FISA uh, is what we're trying to stop because what the United States government did was say, well, 
we yes, we have FISA, but we're going to go around that. And they did something that's entirely illegal because the law is very clear that for the government to wiretap, it either goes through the FISA process if it's a situation involving national security. You know, one of the things, Nancy, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but one of the things when I looked at FISA was I, I was surprised at how low the hurdle was to get a FISA warrant. For example, I think all you have to show is that the one of the parties to the con- communication is either a foreign party, foreign hostile party, or an agent of a foreign, foreign hostile, hostile party. party right. right. So for somebody like you, for example, who represents essentially, at least according to the government, all hostile so, parties, it seems to me like— Foreign hostile parties. Yeah, foreign That's hostile right. parties. They could wiretap under FISA every one of your conversations. Well, they, at least they'd have to go to a court, to the FISA court, and they would have to convince the FISA judge to give them to to stamp the warrant and say they have to go with a warrant and say we want to to do this and we have probable cause. But isn't to, that the court that's only turned down one? That's true. It's one not, out of what for hundreds? Thousands. 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 It's not. It's not much of a burden. It's not a probable cause to believe someone's committed a crime. Which it's, is the conventional burden. Which is the conventional burden for what's known as regular. Title III wiretapping. But for a FISA warrant, they only need to show, as you said, probable cause to believe someone is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. It's for intelligence gathering. But originally, it was not meant to be to gather a criminal case. Now, that's sort of merged now after the Patriot Act, but it's a very low standard. And it's a standard that this government ought to have been able to use. It also has emergency measures. But hasn't the government now said, well, we, you know, we, you win. Nancy Hollander, you win. We concede. We're not going to do this anymore. Well, that's what they claim. Um, but it's not clear because they said, you win for the moment, but we're not going to say we're not going to go back to doing it if we feel the need to do it. So they haven't really adm- agreed to not do it. They've said they won't do it unless they decide they will do it. And this whole litigation is pending before yet another court, I take This it. is pending before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati. No, I wanted to ask you a quick general question because, you know, we started out with what motivates Nancy Hollander to take on these things. And I'm sure there are some people in the audience would like to know what they could do or what you would suggest they could do if they were motivated to participate in what you do. And, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas on that. I think people can speak out. People can tell their their Congress people and the legislature uh, what they will and will not put up with in this country. I think they can do it through how they vote. I think they can demand that the press give them accurate information about what's going on. And when they don't get it in the press, demand it. I think people want to. They can support, if they have the finances, they can support some of these activities that need uh, financial support. Uh, but, you know, people need to not be afraid to speak out. That's part of what's happened in this country is that people are afraid. Everyone's afraid. People are afraid of what they read on the plane. Someone might think they're uh, al-Qaeda if they're reading a book uh, the Koran on the on the airplane. Nancy Hollander, thank you so much for being here. We've been listening back to Stephen's 2008 interview with Albuquerque civil rights lawyer Nancy Hollander. 
She was portrayed by Jodie Foster in the 2021 film The Mauritanian for her efforts in winning the freedom of Mohamedou Salahi from U.S. prison in Guantanamo, Cuba. I'm Gus Tafoya, and I helped to produce this show along with Tristan Klum and executive producer Lynn Shebecki. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of the show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.